Sundays ago is the Sunday that I talked to you about Mary anointing Jesus' feet with perfume and her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. Saturday is when the dinner happened that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead one to three days before that, and there was a dinner in honor of Lazarus and Jesus, and Mary blows in and disrupts everything, crying and breaks her perfume bottle and anoints Jesus, and Jesus says, she's anointed me for my burial. And the next morning is what we now call Palm Sunday, where Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he rides a donkey in, and the people are waving their palm branches, and we're going to start with that scripture. John chapter 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Okay, it says a great multitude. The best Bible scholars can tell you that uh, Jerusalem's population is about 100 to 120,000 at this time. And then more people were coming for Passover that was going to happen on Saturday. Uh, Six days from this is the Passover, which is their biggest feast of the year. And people would come from all over the Mediterranean world, from what we now call Turkey and Spain and North Africa, as far away as from what we now would say is France. They would come, Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. So in no way is this a small crowd because another gospel says the entire city was there. So if there's 120,000 people that live there, plus there would be about 100,000 visitors coming to town through the week. Now on Sunday morning, it's still six days out for Passover, so not all of those visitors were there yet. They're still arriving very safe conservative estimate would be there's 150,000 people and they all come out to welcome Jesus into town the day before you could text your friend or, or snap them and say hey there's a big event come join the crowd word of mouth just got out that Jesus was riding into town on a donkey and it's only two miles from Lazarus's house to Jerusalem so it wasn't like he traveled for days and word had time to get out this is a supernatural event where God gathers the entire city And they are all shouting and waving branches in Jesus. And notice they call him the king of Israel. They are certain that he is God's Messiah. By this time, Jesus is so famous. He's the celebrity of the world. And everybody knows he's in the direct line of the kings of Israel. And everybody wants the Messiah to be manifest and take the throne of David and fight off the Romans and and establish Israel as a kingdom again. This is what's going on in their minds. Matthew 21, different gospel, same story. Now when they drew near Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village and you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, and loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. I forgot to say, the smallest NFL stadium in America seats 61,000 people. The largest seats 82,000 people. So let's take an average NFL stadium is 75,000 people. This is double that. Okay? That's a safe, conservative estimate. Twice the size of a packed NFL stadium. And they're all out there meeting Jesus, cheering him on. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Everybody knew what was going on. 
Everybody was there. Everybody was watching. Everybody was aware that this event was happening. And notice again, they're calling him the son of David. They know who he is. Luke 19. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King. Notice that word again. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Back to John chapter 12. The people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead told everyone. Now this is three to six days after Lazarus is raised from the dead. This is one day after Mary has anointed him with her oil and her tears. But everybody who had seen Lazarus alive, which was thousands of people, is telling everybody in the crowd what Jesus has done, pointing Lazarus out. There he is. You see him right there behind Jesus. For this reason, the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, See, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world. It's chasing after Jesus. That's, that sentence right there is my whole sermon this morning. You'll see how this unrolls as we go. But the Pharisees, they, don't, they know they don't literally mean every single person in the world knows about Jesus. But in their geography, the whole world is represented. Everybody from all the way around the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, people from even as far away as what we would call southern Russia, and France and North Africa, all of it, they're all there. And so the whole world was represented, and uh, the Pharisees are upset. We've lost the battle. The people are going to crown him king, and he's going to be in charge instead of us. From Mark chapter 11, the fourth gospel, those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all these things, as the hour was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the 12. It's 150,000 people following Jesus. There are way less Roman soldiers in town than that. And Jesus has a riotous mob at a fever pitch. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David, the king of Israel. He's going to establish the throne. And look, he's going toward the temple. Now they've been living under the slavery of the Romans for decades before that, it was Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And before that, it was this. And before that, it was this. And they, they so badly want their own kingdom. They want their freedom. And this is it. This is the moment. This is the Messiah. And Jesus goes into the temple. The crowd is like, man, I'm sure the Roman soldiers were literally shaking. I'm sure they were terrified because they were way outnumbered. And Jesus looks around the temple and leaves town with 12. Where did the other 149,988 people go? They went home extremely disappointed, super deflated, maybe really angry. Like this was it. This was the moment. This was the revolution. This is the Messiah. This is our day. And Jesus didn't do anything with it because he absolutely could not have the crowd, the riotous mob, crown him king. His kingdom has to come from his father. But he didn't do anything with it. And he walks two miles out of town and nobody goes with him except the 12. The rest of them just go home disappointed. 
because he didn't do what they thought he would do politically, governmentally. Well, Matthew tells us one thing that he did do that evening. I don't know why Mark skips over it, but he doesn't mention it, but Matthew does. He says, when Jesus went into the temple of God, he drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he left and he went out to the city, to Bethany, and he lodged there. He went back to Lazarus' and Mary and Martha's house and spent the night. He didn't do anything that anybody expected except that he, he, another gospel says he made a whip. And he went and he started whipping the money changers that were robbing the people. They were selling animals for sacrifice in the temple at exorbitant prices. They were ripping people off. And Jesus was furious and he made a whip and he whipped them out of the temple. And he didn't go into the palace and he didn't take the throne and he didn't fight the Romans off. And he very easily could have turned that mob and said, go kill all the Roman soldiers. And they could have done it in a matter of an hour. It could have been done. And he didn't do it. And everybody left except the 12. And the 12 followed him back out to Bethany. And I'm sure they were as confused as anybody else. What in the world is going on? Why did he not do something? But he didn't. So the rest of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Jesus, there's lots of Bible stories about this week before Jesus is crucified. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Jesus is questioned by the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, and they're all testing him. Um, and other preachers have noted that before Passover, the lamb had to be in quarantine for a week and had to be looked at and examined every day to make sure that it was actually perfect without blemish or spot or disease or injury. And uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he's about to be sacrificed for Passover and this is his examination. And every day he goes from Martha and Lazarus's house, comes two miles out of town and there's crowds and, and every day he gets asked questions and he, they never trick him. He answers every one of them perfectly right. There's no sin or error found to be in him. But he never does rise up in anything political or governmental. We come to Thursday, and Thursday evening is the night of the Last Supper. Jesus has to celebrate the Passover early because the Passover is going to happen the day after he's dead. He knows that, but his disciples don't understand it. So Thursday night, they have the Passover, and we call it the Last Supper or communion, where he takes the bread and the wine, and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood. and Do this in remembrance of me. And then after dinner, Judas is about to leave to go to betray him, to go get his money from the Pharisees and, and bring him to Jesus. But after dinner, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, he rose and laid aside his garments, and he took a towel and girded himself. So he would have taken off his outer robe and his tunic, which was a long shirt past the knees that they wore, and he's in his underwear which is a wrap that they wore, the men wore. It's just him and the disciples. And this is how the lowest servants of the household washed people's feet, both ceremonially, religiously, and even hygienically. They saw the feet as the dirtiest part of the body, the, uh, the most unclean thing, and the lowest servant of all was the one in charge of washing people's feet when they took their sandals off and came in the house. The lowest servant had to wash their feet, and Jesus strips down to his underwear. He tucks a towel into the waistband of his wrap that he would have been wearing and he gets on his knees in front of his disciples and washes their feet 
And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And when he came to Simon Peter, Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not now understand, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Now Peter isn't being bossy to Jesus. He's just, in the same way John says, Jesus, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. Peter's like, No, Jesus, you are not beneath me. I'm beneath you. I wash your feet. And Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so, Peter being Peter, switches into high gear and says, Well, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head too. And Jesus has to correct that also. And Jesus says, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. He knows Judas is literally in like five or ten minutes going to leave and betray him. And he's on his knees in front of Judas washing his feet, along with the rest of them. He knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Amen. Immediately after this, it says Jesus got dressed again. And then they went out to the garden, and this is where he is so distressed, he's sweating blood as he prays, but the disciples are so clueless and so tired, they keep falling asleep on him. And Jesus is alone in his distress, where he prays, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. But Judas shows up with a small contingent of Pharisees and priests and temple guards, and this is where he kisses Jesus, and Jesus is arrested. They try to grab John, but they grab him by his clothes, and he wriggles out of his clothes and runs off naked. All the other disciples run off, and Jesus is all alone, but Peter follows at a distance, and this is where he denies Jesus three times. He says, I don't even know the guy. So much for wash my head and my feet. Jesus is beaten several different times in different ways. He's on trial with the chief priests overnight, and then at sunrise on Friday morning is when he is taken to Herod, To be tried, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus killed. But Herod doesn't have authorization to order a crucifixion. Only the Romans can do that. Herod can't authorize an execution. So they have to take him to Pilate, who's the commander of the Roman soldiers that are at the fort right next to the temple. They're literally just like on the other side of the wall. And so Pilate is in charge there. And Pilate knows that the Pharisees, everybody knows who Jesus is. It is highly likely that Pilate was, this is now Friday morning, but highly likely Pilate was there on Sunday when Jesus came in on the donkey. Because if there's a riotous mob of 150,000 people cheering somebody on, calling him king, I guarantee you if you're the Roman commander in the city, you're going to know what's going on, right? I'm sure all the Roman soldiers were out there like, what's about to happen? I'm sure Pilate was there, but now Jesus is standing in for him in handcuffs shackles of some sort and he knows the Pharisees have just handed him over for jealousy because he's more popular with the people than they are and this is how the trial goes down Mark 15 now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them whoever they requested and there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels and they had committed murder in the rebellion so Barabbas was a leader of some sort of uh, political revolt And they had fought some Roman soldiers and killed a couple of them. So he's arrested and going to be tried for murder and executed on a cross. So he's a murderer and he's a political rebel. And then the multitude crying out began to ask him to do just as he had always done. But Pilate answered them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said, What then do you want me to do with him who is called the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. But Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Again, in no way in the Bible does it list numbers, but there's even more people in town now on Friday morning than there was last Sunday when Jesus rode in on the donkey. It's the same crowd. Plus more, but the same crowd who on Sunday was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, King of David. And now they're shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. And who do they pick? Barabbas. A murderer and a political rebel. Another gospel, Matthew chapter 27, tells the same story. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ or the Messiah? For they, he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want to, me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And then Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult or a riot was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. It's one of the most terrifying things anybody ever said in world history. And 35 years later, God destroyed the city and because of this. Every single person, babies included, was slaughtered by the Roman army because they called down the guilt of Jesus' blood on themselves and their children. But guess what? Jesus' blood is on me and on my children too, and I am very happy about it. Jesus' blood is on every single person ever born either for salvation or for destruction. You get to choose. You are either guilty of his blood or you are redeemed by his blood. Amen. Amen. But we have this multitude, this crowd before Pilate, even a larger crowd than last Sunday, shouting, crucify him, crucify him, we want Barabbas. Barabbas, the name, Ari told me, Barabbas means the son of the father. Bar is son, and Abbas is Abba. Abba means father. But Barabbas means the son of the father. Well, who else is the son of the father? Come on. Come on. Yeah, Jesus. The crowd, the whole city, the whole world, the Pharisees say, have a choice between two sons of two fathers. They have the only begotten son of God, and they have who Jesus said, you are the son of your father, the devil. Barabbas is called a robber and a thief and a murderer. Who else is called a robber, a thief, and a murderer? Satan. And they chose the first Antichrist, the first anti-Messiah. Because 
this one over here, Jesus didn't do what we wanted last Sunday. We want a Messiah who leads us to freedom. So we will choose a murderer and a rebel. Because I want what I want. I want my freedom. They picked the son of Satan. And the whole world is going to do it again. They will choose emphatically and gladly. They will choose the Antichrist because they think he will save them from a crooked government. The Pharisees knew exactly what they were doing, but the crowd on Friday was just so easily swayed because they want their freedom so bad. If Jesus isn't going to try, we want the guy who tried to get rid of the Romans. And so Jesus was crucified. The triumphal entry, Jesus comes in on a donkey. Let's go back to Sunday. The Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him. I had a supernatural moment months ago with the Lord where he opened my eyes to something I'd never seen before, but that this last seven days of Jesus' life, earthly life, is a road map. It is a prophecy. It is a scriptural map to what will happen at the end of the age. And that there is coming a day of worldwide revival when the whole world will follow after Jesus. The Pharisees said it, and it's a prophecy. And somebody may think, well, how, why would you think that the Pharisees are speaking a prophecy from God? Because earlier, the, the scribes and priests and Pharisees had had a secret meeting, and John says, the chief priest said, it's better that one man should die than the whole nation get punished by the Romans. And John says, and he was prophesying and he didn't know it. He was talking about Jesus' crucifixion. So even evil people, it's not the only instance in the Bible, but even, even pe evil people can speak the will of God without knowing it. So I'm here to tell you this morning that there is coming, before Jesus returns, there is coming a worldwide revival where the whole city is in an uproar, where the whole world comes out after Jesus. What do you mean by that, Mitch? What's revival mean? Well, I have some stories for you. Some examples that I want to tell you, what things God has done in history and uh, what's in our future is going to surpass anything he has done before. So these are just some examples. There are many more that I could give you, but we're going to go to 1741. And this dude, Jonathan Edwards, is a Puritan preacher in the American colonies. This is before George Washington and the Revolutionary War. This is when we were British colonies. 1741, Jonathan Edwards is a minister of a, church, a Puritan church in Massachusetts. Life went on as normal for uncountable Sundays in church. And then one Sunday, he preaches a very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody ever heard of that? He began to preach about the fear of the Lord and the danger that we are in and how it is only by God's mercy that we are not cast into hell this very moment. And people in his church began to cry, and then they began to cry out. And the men were wailing, and the women were shrieking, and they were struck with conviction of their own sin, and they were struck with the fear of the Lord. And some people ran from the building, and other people, after he was done, refused to leave the building. And they were on the floor. There was just a general uproar, and it went out into town. And all Sunday afternoon, everybody is talking to each other about what happened in this church this morning. And people are in the streets of the city getting on their knees and repenting of their sin and calling out on God to save them. Wanted to come back the next day and the next day, and the services just continued to join. And 
other preachers and ministers and other churches get word and they invite Jonathan to come to their church and preach there and eventually the entire state of Massachusetts is just in an uproar of religion and not in a bad sense where everybody who would have said they were Christians is actually getting born again and saved and it's spread all over New England and from Maine to New York and then in the midst of that a preacher came from England his name is George Whitfield and he was 24 years old he was so young and so skinny that the crowds would laugh at him when he walked up to the pulpit. But they said within seconds of his beginning preaching, it was completely silent because everyone was in awe of what they, who they called the boy preacher with the voice of a lion. And he would preach for an hour at a time and grown men would begin to cry and women would faint out of their seats. Eventually, after just a, a couple of months of preaching around America, he couldn't fit any meeting in a building and he always preached outside. Uh, Benjamin Franklin went to hear him in Boston. Benjamin Franklin said, I, I backed up a quarter mile away from him and I could hear him completely clear and plain. When the population of Boston was 16,000 people, he estimated there was 23,000 people there that day. Come on. God was doing something that wasn't happening in normal everyday life. And we call it revival. Eventually, George Whitfield spoke to a crowd of 30,000 people and then he spoke to a crowd of 60,000 people. As was at the same time where John and Charles Wesley are traveling all over England preaching. John Wesley preached three times a day for 47 years. Uh, he would get up at 4 a.m. and preach his first sermon at 5 a.m., but he didn't go to church to do it. He would go stand outside a factory or a shipyard or a mine and just start preaching at the men as they came to work. And eventually he became so famous that at 5 a.m. at a random location every morning that was never advertised, he would have two or 3,000 people show up to hear him preach at 5 a.m. 5 a.m., folks. How often do you get up at 4 a.m. to go hear a sermon at 5? They were preaching to thousands. I told you about Charles Wesley writing the, the hymns for the meetings and John traveling all over. This is also the same time, this is uh, the middle 1700s, where I've told you about the Moravians in Germany. where They had their 24-7 prayer meeting for over 116 years. They prayed nonstop, 24-7. The Moravians sent missionaries out all over the world. The story I told you about the two men that wanted to go to the sugarcane plantation in the Caribbean to evangelize the slaves, and the slave owners wouldn't let them come on the plantations unless they were a slave. They said, all right, we sell ourselves to you. We will be your slave. And they sold themselves into slavery just to get to live with the black slaves so that they could bring Jesus to them. That's the Moravians. All of these, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, the Moravians, it's all at the same time, 1740s through 60s. It now gets called the Great Awakening because it was a great awakening. The Holy Spirit moved all over Europe and America, and people came alive and awake to Jesus in a way that they had not been before. But it wears off over time, and so later, decades later, America needed another revival. And I'm jumping to 1801, when now the United States is a country. We have our second president, John Adams. Kentucky and Tennessee are the far west frontier. We hadn't even bought... Louisiana purchased yet in 1801. Lewis and Clark hadn't even made their journey yet. But in Kentucky and Tennessee, things were rough. The only people who left the eastern seaboard where the cities were, who would go out into the mountains of West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee and southern Ohio, were you're either running from the law or you were a seriously hard scrabble person who's willing to go out and cut down the forests and pull stumps out with a mule so you can plant corn. 
And Christianity is just not your thing. Um, the, the preachers that went to the frontier to try to bring the gospel to these people said not one in six people was in a church on a Sunday. You've got to get it out of your head that America used to have some good old days. Um, is, there's never been the good old days. There's been revival where God did great things, but it's always worn off. But only one in six people attend a church, and that's less than today. We think we're in a really bad situation right now, and we are. And I know that in 1801 Kentucky, they weren't aborting babies or pretending to be a different gender and all of that garbage, but things were really, really bad. Public drunkenness and syphilis were way worse in 1801 than they are now. And the preachers were bemoaning the spiritual condition of the people, and they couldn't get them to come to church because if I live 20 miles from the nearest town, why would I want to load my family up on a wagon and ride some forest trail that's not even a road to come into church for a couple hours and then go back home? So what the pastors realized is if we're going to get people to come, we need it, it needs to be more than just a Sunday morning service. So in the summer, they started doing these things they called camp meetings where come for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and all of the people from all the home homesteads around the frontier will come together and you'll all get to meet your neighbors. Your nearest neighbors are eight miles away, but you know, you get to meet your neighbors and we'll have church and it'll be just a grand time. People liked that. So beginning in 1799 and on through, they began to have what called camp meetings and these camp meetings were great social times, but they were also really great spiritual times and people began to get born again and and uh, the gospel was making headway in Kentucky and Tennessee. And in 1801, at Cane Ridge, which is the most famous of all the camp meetings, things had grown to such uh, an, a fever pitch and an interest that in Cane Ridge, there was a clearing in the wilderness where a pastor named Martin W. Stone decides to have a camp meeting, and he sends out some flyers all over, and 30,000 people showed up. There's only 40,000 people in all of Kentucky and Tennessee. This is almost nearly the entire population of two states show up in this clearing in the woods outside of a village called Cane Ridge. There were so many people that one preacher couldn't be heard at one time, so several people wrote about these in letters and, and diaries and things. He said, at one, at one point, there are seven preachers spread out over about a 15-acre area, and they've got people gathered around them, and they're preaching the gospel. And, and some of these meetings had had some really wild stuff happen, but Cane Ridge was by far the wildest. As the preachers began to preach, people are struck with the fear of the Lord and conviction of their sin. That At first, it's, they said it this followed the same pattern about every day. They'd come on Friday, and they'd preach, and it'd be a good service, but nothing really would happen. But then beginning Saturday, they said we'd start preaching, and conviction of the Lord would strike, and the women would begin to cry, and the men would begin to cry, and the kids would begin to cry, and then they'd hit their knees, and they'd repent of their sin, and and uh, start getting right with God. And then, he said, then as things begin to wound up, he said, people would start being really loud in their wailing over their conviction of their sin. And he said, sometimes people would pass out and just, boom, just hit the ground. He said, it was really funny when it was the big frontiersman, woodsman, you know, in his Daniel Boone type clothes and in his musket, and he just, boom, just hits the ground. And then they began to notice that some of these people were on the ground a long time, and they would be on the ground an hour without any pulse or breath, except that once in a while they would roll over and moan or shriek. And then they would wake up. The story was always the same, from seven-year-old girls to 60-year-old men. I have just been in hell. 
I have seen the fire of hell, and I was damned. And these are people who would have said they were Christians all their life. I've seen the fire of hell, I've been in hell, and I got Jesus' blood saves me, and they would get up and they would preach, and then the, the whole crowd would just go into a frenzy. There was a seven-year-old girl that had this happen to her. She was on the ground, passed out for a, an hour, and she got up and she starts preaching, and they put her on a grown man's shoulders, and she has the whole crowd enraptured for an hour while she wags her finger at them and tells them to get right with Jesus. There, some people got what they called the shakes, and where their head would go back and forth and they just couldn't control their arms. And some people really criticize that as these people are just getting really wound up and overexcited because of the crowd. And, but many of the ministers, they would interview the people afterwards and they said, we think this is real, this has got to be God because the people describe this as, as the, the most holy and happy moment of their life when, when they're overtaken by the Holy Spirit. 30,000 people showed up for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday meeting Well, Monday morning comes and nobody leaves. Because they're just so excited and nobody wants to leave. More people are coming. Some people are coming to mock it. There's a famous story of a group of six men that came to mock this. And one of them is a preacher's son. And he told his, his uh, fellow men as they come, he says, I'm no woman. I'm not going to get weak. I'm not going to shake. I'm not going to pass out. I'm not going to be overcome by emotion. Not, he said as soon as they got there, his knees got weak and he got all dizzy inside. And he said, he said, I couldn't believe it. I was overcome with the wild emotion of the moment, and I just had to get away. He said, I went out in the woods, and I, was run I found myself running and sweating and panting hard, trying to get away. Well, it was the presence of God. And I'm trying to get away, and he tripped over a log, and he landed on his face. And he said, my face landed in the dirt, and instantly I started confessing all my sins and begging God for mercy and to save me from hell, and I had no idea why. After an hour of that, he got up and he comes back and he finds his friends and said, we got to get out of here. And they got on their horses and they went back to town, which was a few miles away. And there were some people in town either talking about the meeting excitedly or talking about the meeting in criticism and judgment. He said, we went to the tavern. I said, I have to get drunk. I just have to forget it all. And he said, and I got drunk and I went to bed and I couldn't sleep. I was awake all night in agony and I knew I would die and go to hell the next morning if I did not surrender to Jesus. And he said, I gave my life to Jesus and he was a pastor the rest of his life. Yeah, Kentucky, 1801, Cane Ridge. But God needs to show himself in other places, and those events wear off. And the pastors in Kentucky and Tennessee described the next two years, the, the revival fervor wore off, but they said Tennessee was heaven on earth. The churches were unified. There was no debating and division between the churches, and there was the crime was almost nothing. It just almost completely disappeared um, for a couple of years after Cane Ridge as the people serve the Lord, but eventually it wears off. So God asked to do some things again. In the 1830s, there's this man, Charles Finney, who is an attorney, who is not a Christian, doesn't go to church, didn't give any thought to God. He said, I'm walking down the street on my way to my law office, and, and I'm frozen in my tracks by a voice in my mind that says, are you going to surrender to Christ today? He said, I've never given any thought to Jesus Christ at all in my life. Everybody in America knew what church was and what the Bible was and all, but he said, I'd I didn't know where that came from. He said, I was overcome with emotion, and I didn't know what it was. And I went to my office, and I told my clerk, I'm going for a walk. I'll be back later. He went out into the woods, and he found a private grove of trees, and he said, and I hit my knees, and I begged God to forgive my sin. And I said, and when I woke up that morning, I had absolutely no concern for my sin at all. And all of a sudden, now I'm begging God to save me from hell and from my own sins. And he was there for hours. And he said, I finally found some peace in my heart, like God had forgiven me. So I went back to my law office, and it was the end of the day, and my clerk was leaving. And I said, I feel like I need to pray for a few more hours. So they put, he said, we put large logs on the fire. 
And my clerk left, and he said, and I shut the door, and instantly I collapsed on my floor. And my eyes are closed, and it's dark. He said, but I open my eyes, and there's light in the room, and I look up, and Jesus is standing in front of him. And Jesus' feet are right at his face, and he said, just like Mary in the Gospels, I bathed Jesus' feet in my tears as I wept, and I just was overwhelmed with wave after wave of liquid love. And he said, it felt like 15 minutes, but I got up, and my log fire was gone had to have been at least three hours for that large of a fire. Instantly, he quit law practice and began preaching. The next morning, he went out on the street and led five or six people to the Lord right there in the street of his town, and he began to preach at the local church. And so many people got born again that other churches and pastors are inviting him to come and preach here and there. And he's in his early 30s, maybe, at this time, mid-30s. Um, he's traveling, and he becomes very famous all over New York. And he travels into a town and he'd have meetings for a week to a month, depending on what the Lord told him to do. And wherever he would go, he would begin preaching and people would begin crying and then they would begin crying out. And he said grown men would moan in their seats and then collapse on the floor. And the same thing would happen that happened at Cane Ridge. People would collapse and be gone for an hour with no breath or pulse. Except that maybe once in a while they would moan or groan or shriek out. And there was great conviction of sin under his preaching and many, many thousands of people in New York got saved. He had a man who would travel with him and pray for a week to a month before he would come and preach. Daniel Nash, he had had an eye disease earlier in life. He wasn't blind, but he couldn't, light hurt his eyes. Uh, excruciating pain, so he had to wear a black veil that hung from the brim of his hat. He had been a preacher, but he couldn't preach anymore because he couldn't show his face in public. Most of the time, he had to spend in a dark room with his eyes shut because it was so painful. So he just spent all of his time praying, and he would go into town before Finney. Like I said, for a week to a month, he would rent a room or just live in a barn or wherever he could. One time, he rented a root cellar for a month and just lived in a root cellar. Uh, and he would pray all day and all night for what would happen for salvation when Finney would come to town and preach. One time, Daniel Nash and another man rented a room uh, in a town Finney was coming in a week or so. When he got to town, the innkeeper ladies says to Finney, that man Daniel Nash who came a week ago, he hasn't left his room. And I hear strange noises coming from his room, and I open the door, and he's on his face, and he's screaming into the floor. He's praying for revival, for salvation, for the people of New York. And Finney said of Nash, I've never seen him pray so hard that he sweat blood, but I've seen him pray so hard that his nose bled like a waterfall. He would fast so long that he would collapse and be, have, be bedridden for a month. That's how hard he prayed for the revivals in the towns where Finney was going to come. And then really, really wild stuff would happen when Finney got there. There was all sorts of miracles. There was a lady who, as Finney was preaching one time, lady in the congregation, hits her knees, cries, asks God to forgive her, gets born again right there on the spot while Finney's preaching. And then she picks up her Bible and stands up and begins to read the Bible out loud while the preacher's preaching. And everybody in the church begins to gasp and cry, and there's just this general uproar. And Finney says, what's going on? She says, the whole church says, that woman can't read. She can't read a word. She's reading the King James Bible perfectly. Everybody knew she couldn't read. Rome, New York, Finney was there, and it's like the whole town went into the twilight zone. 
It was the presence of God that came into town, but nobody could do anything. All the businesses closed because the people just wandered around like they were in a dream. And a man who tells this story says, I had business to contract in Rome, and I knew that I'd heard rumors of really strange stuff happening in Rome. This is Rome, New York. He said, I wanted to go see it for myself, not because I believed it, because I wanted to mock it. He said, I got to the bridge coming into town, and I could see as I approached the bridge, on the other side of the bridge, there is a pile of men, and they're all passed out. These men had ridden into town, just passed out on the ground. He said, I was determined not to fall out of my wagon. So I grabbed hold of my wagon, and I let the horse go over the bridge. He says, at the top of the bridge, I felt it. It was like I drove into, and I could hardly stay in my seat. And he rode past the pile of men and horses, and he got to the tavern. He said, I had to find the man I was there to construct business with. He said, I walked in the tavern. It's full of people, and no one is speaking. There's no conversation. No one's doing anything. He said, there's people just standing around, milling around, doing nothing. There's people facing the wall, muttering, and they're all, he says, I got close, and they're all praying. He said, some of them are confessing their sins and asking for forgiveness. Some of them are worshiping the Lord. He said, but nobody was talking to each other. It was all like they were just wandering around in a fog. He said, it was really spooky, and I couldn't wait to get out of there. And so he said, I contracted my business that I was there to contract, and I rode back out of town. He said, as soon as I rode over that bridge, it was all gone. It was just there in town while Daniel Nash was praying and Finney was preaching. Finney went to Rochester, New York, and in 18 months, there was 160,000 salvations. There were at least six people died for opposing Finney. Five preachers preached a sermon condemning Finney and his revival, and they died the next day. Separate instances, but this one he knows. And a newspaper man wrote a critical newspaper article and died the next day. There was a woman got saved in one of his evening meetings, and her husband was an avowed atheist, and he was furious. And so he loaded his muzzleloader pistol, and this is before the days of revolvers, you know, the muzzleloader with the little cock thing on it, and he came to church the next day. He's going to shoot Finney while he's preaching. And... Finney gets up to preach, and the, man, and the Holy Spirit pushed him down on his knees, and he began to shriek in his confessing his sins. As a vowed atheist begins to confess his sins and ask God for mercy, and he lifted up his loaded pistol and handed it to Finney. <laughs> Whole factories shut down because nobody could go to work the next morning after the meetings. He was in uh, some place in New York again, and... and um, there was a meeting that went till about midnight, but they weren't, they weren't able to not work because of exhaustion. It was just they were so under the influence of the Spirit of God. Everybody went to work the next morning in the textile mill, and an hour into it, the factory owner realizes we're not getting anything done today. So he calls Finney at the inn he was staying at, and he says, can you just come out and preach to these people because they're not even working? Everybody's standing or milling around like so Finney gets in the mule barn and stands up on the hayloft and all the employees just sit in the hay in the bottom of the mule barn and he preaches all day to them and they invite their family and friends and for three days the factory's at a total shutdown and everybody gets saved. Everybody in town. Come on. The whole city was in an uproar. Come on. There was at least three separate times where as Finney is preaching an attorney stands up and repents of robbing money from people and gives it back. Well, that's revival when lawyers are repenting of stealing money from people. Come on, that's a move of God. This revival was not just Finney. There was hundreds of preachers that were spread all over New England, uh, New York. It spread up into Montreal and Quebec and Canada, where Jason Lee, told you about this, the last Sunday of the year, Jason Lee, the Canadian doctor, got the call from the Lord to be a missionary to Oregon. Yes, this is that revival that Oregon is directly born out of. 
All right, skipping forward to 1904 and 05 in Wales, this man, Evan Roberts, he's 26 years old in that picture, but at 12 years old, he had had to quit school to go mine coal with his father to earn money for the family. At 13 years old, he's a miner, and he's just devastated by the, the condition of the men who are in the coal mines with him, the way they would speak, the way they lived, the way they drank, the way they treated the animals. Um, he, he had grown up in a Christian family, and he just he, at 13 years old, he's thrown in with these hard men. He began to bring his Bible every day and read his Bible out loud on his lunch break, and the men were brutal to him. Uh, at 14, 15, 16 years old, he's reading his Bible out loud to anybody that would listen around while they have their lunch break, and he's trying to share the gospel with these people, and they're brutal to him. At 15, 16, 17 years old, he would fast multiple days a week while he's mining coal 12 hours a day. He's fasting for the salvation of the men he's working with. Are there any teenagers in the room that fast for even two classmates, much less your whole country? Evan Roberts was deeply distressed, he said, at the failure of Christianity in my nation. Through his teen years, he prays and fasts, reads his Bible to any minor that would listen, but in his early 20s, he began to have spiritual experiences. He said that um, every morning at 1 a.m., he would wake up to a light in his bedroom, and he said God was there, and God would take me to heaven. He said, it, he said it was just like what Paul says, I was taken up into the third heaven where I was shown glory that I cannot explain. He said every night for three to four months from 1 to 4 a.m., I was in heaven. And then he'd get up and work a 12-hour shift at the mine. He said, and I said, I was not asleep. I was awake, and I was taken by God to heaven. And in a dream, at the end of that three months, God told him, I'm going to give you 100,000 souls in six months. And God didn't mean six months from now. He meant over a six-month period that's still in the future. I'm going to give you 100,000 salvations. So he went out, and he asked the local pastor. He said, can I preach on Sunday? And the guy says, no. But I tell you what, you can hold a youth meeting in the other building on Sunday night. So Sunday night comes, and there's a few kids. And Evan Roberts, 26 years old, gets up to preach. And the kids are hit with the Spirit of God. And there's conviction of sin, and there's repentance, and there's miracles, and there's life change. And they went home and told their parents. And the next night, it was only supposed to be a once-a-week meeting, but the next night the kid's like, we're going to bring our parents. Let's do it again. So all the parents came the next night. And the next night, the parents brought all their friends and their kids. And within a week, there are hundreds of people attending Evan Roberts' evening meetings, way more than comes on Sunday morning for the real preacher at the actual church. And within two weeks, he has 800 people attending his meetings every night, more outside than inside. And the entire city is struck with concern for their salvation and God. This is what revival means. And there's standing room only and as many outside. And, and in two weeks, Evan Roberts went from a completely unknown coal miner to the most famous person in Wales. And all of the churches across Wales are inviting him to come and preach at their churches. And he began to travel. And his style was so different from everybody else. Sometimes the meeting was, was supposed to start at 6. And he would come in and the crowd is there. And it's like, oh, this is going to be a great night. And he would get on his knees and he would pray for two hours. And he expected everybody else to just pray and wait on him until the Lord told him what to say. And then he'd get, get up and preach for 10 minutes. And people would hit the ground and they'd be there till 2 a.m. In two months, he was internationally known. 
250,000 people, a quarter million people were born again in a year. So many people were attending these meetings and so many people getting born again every night that the newspapers in the sports stats section began printing the numbers of the people who got baptized the day before. Come on! Can you imagine American newspapers publishing the numbers of people that got baptized the night before? Come on! (laughs) The public crime rate was cut in half. Some judges didn't see a case for a month. But bankruptcies in Wales went up 10 times because all the taverns and pubs had to close because nobody's drinking. Now, if you know the British, the Scotch, the Irish, the well, I mean, you know. Those guys come out of the coal mine after a 12-hour shift and they get themselves soused before they go home. And they totally quit. The pub owners hated Evan Roberts. <laughs> Because they lost all their business. The factories, the steel mills, the coal mines, they would have to close at 4 p.m. so that the men could get home and get something to eat and clean up to go to the meetings. But most of them didn't ever clean up. They didn't go take a bath after mining in the coal mine or working in the steel refinery. So they come with their black faces. And Evan Roberts said, most of my meetings, all of the men just had white streaks right down their cheeks as they cried the coal dust off of their face all night, every night. And the, the country was completely changed. The ponies that worked in the mines quit working because of the revival. Um, they're called pit ponies. They would pull the carts of coal in the underground tunnels. They quit working because they didn't know what to do anymore because all of the miners quit cussing. All of the commands to the ponies were accompanied with so many swear words that the ponies didn't understand what the command was if it wasn't accompanied with 18 swear words. So the ponies would just stand there and not know what to do. They had to be retrained because all the coal miners got born again and quit cussing. This was his worship team, five teenage girls. They are 17, 18, and 19 years old. One of them would play piano or organ in whatever the church building has, and the other four would sing, Here is Love, 200,000 times a year. as an ocean. You just sang that as we were worshiping. It was never officially done, but the Welsh people called it the Welsh National Anthem. Here's the story. There was, for some reason, somehow in the middle of this revival, there is an actual court case. Somebody committed a crime. And uh, the judges were used to having all their time off with nothing to do, but there's a defendant there, and his attorney rises to present his defense. The convict is struck with such conviction he tells his lawyer to sit down and be quiet he said I don't want to be defended I committed the crime I plead guilty the judge bangs his gavel on the bench and says I adjourn this court 
The judge stands up and he says, now I speak no longer to you as a judge, I speak to you as a Christian man. If you will confess this sin to Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven and born again. The defendant hits his knees and is weeping for his sins. The jury stands up and in four-part harmony sings, here is love. (laughs) On the spot. And we have revival in the courtroom. Completely unplanned. Yeah. Could God do it here? Could God do it here? Could America be changed in the same way as Wales? Well, in Los Angeles, there is a black pastor named William Seymour who begins to write letters to Wales, to Evan Roberts, saying, how can I get revival in America? How do I do what you have done? How do I get a hold of God like you have? And William Seymour writes for a year or more letters to Evan Roberts back in Wales. Well, Seymour is the son of a former slave who fought in the Union Army during the Civil War. Uh, William himself was blind in one eye from smallpox years earlier. He wrote to Evan Roberts that he prayed five hours a day. And Evan Roberts says, well, you need to raise that to seven. Seven hours a day. You need to be praying if you want to see national revival change in your nation like we've seen in Wales. So William Seymour began praying and reading his Bible seven hours a day, and people began to join him. And they would pray for seven hours through the day, and they would go home and rest at night, and it happened again the next day. And and at evening, they would have meetings in his house. And in April of 1906, Wales was 1904 and 05, in April of 1906, it came to America. They meet in a home, and William Seymour opens his Bible to Acts chapter 2 and begins to read. He's not even preaching. He's just reading Acts chapter 2. And he got to the part of the wind and the tongues of fire, and they speaking in tongues, and they spill out in the street. And uh, a woman, who would later become his wife, hits the floor. Later, she says, I can only describe it as like a glass dish broke inside of me that was full of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God came out of me from the inside out. And she said, I just I started speaking in tongues. She's speaking in tongues for a while, and she gets up, and without having a single lesson ever in her life, she goes and sits at the piano, and she can play any hymn in the hymn book. And she begins to lead them in worship, and nobody goes home, and it's midnight, and it's 2, and it's 3 a.m., and the neighbors come over, and they're knocking on the door. Hey, what's going on over here? Be quiet. And when they knock on the door and open the door, they would hit the ground and get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And all night it lasted, and the next morning... There are hundreds of people in the street wondering what is this pile of people at the front of this house. For three days and three nights, they did not go to sleep. They did not go home. They did not shut down the meeting. The Seymour preached and they worshiped. And and by the end of the week, in less than six days, there are 800 people gathered around the house not going home, just worshiping the Lord. There were so many people on the front porch that it collapsed. Nobody was hurt, but the, 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 the house is not a place for us to be, and they rented in a building on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And there, there it is, the picture at the time. had a dirt floor and wooden benches, but nobody could sit because there wasn't seating room. Um, there was 800 people inside and 500 people outside in the street two weeks into this time. And William Seymour said this, in a short time, God began to manifest his power and soon the building could not contain the people. Now the meetings continue all day and all night and the fire is kindling all over the city and surrounding towns. 
proud, well-dressed preachers come in their suits to investigate. And soon their high looks are replaced with wonder and then conviction comes and very often you find them in a short time wallowing on the dirt floor in their suit asking God to forgive them and make them little children. Amen. William Seymour said apostolic power brings apostolic persecution. And the newspapers in L.A. were brutal to these people. That they were speaking in Babel and there was a new religious cult in town and so people came to just check it out. And one time a man walks in the back door and a 17-year-old black girl stands up and begins to speak in tongues. And while she's speaking in tongues, he hit his knees and begins to tremble and cry and look terrified. And she finishes what she's doing in tongues and he stands up and he, in front of the whole church. He says, listen, I am a Jew and I came here because of the newspaper reports of this strange new cult that babbles in other languages and I was sure it was fake. Christianity is wrong anyway. But this is really wrong, and I came here to gather evidence, and I was going to go back to my synagogue and tell everyone that this whole thing is a lie. But that 17-year-old black woman just spoke in perfect Hebrew, and she told me my first and last name, the city in Europe where I was born, my business here in town, and she told me to get on my knees and make Jesus Christ my Messiah. And that happened thousands of times. At Azusa Street, there was a room in the upstairs of the building that was full of crutches and wheelchairs that people came in but they left behind when they got healed. Seven days a week for three years, the building was never empty. It never stopped. Seven days a week for three years. People would come to mock it or judge it, newspapers and other preachers, and, but one of the things was the music. They said the singing was absolutely unearthly. They didn't sing songs that anybody knew. They would just sing. And it would go on for hours, and everybody would sing the same words, even though they weren't using a songbook, and it wasn't a known song. There's a man who later in life is remembering back. He said, my mom took me when I was seven. She was a Catholic. He said, I'd ever, all I'd never known was Catholic Church. But my mom wanted to go see what was going on in Azusa Street. And, and uh, he said, we went in, and, and he said, I can't explain to you, but the hair on the back of my head stood up the whole time like there was electricity in the air. And he said, my hands would go up and down, and I didn't know why. And he said, I looked around at one point, and I saw fire on top of everybody's heads. And that really scared me. And he said, and he said, and then I noticed that the babies, their hands were up. The nursing infants, their hands were up. And he said that the meeting would go on for hours, and the babies were perfectly silent. And he said, it wasn't their parents that made the babies silent. It was God. Their Sunday meetings would last 14 hours. 14 hours. Let's go for it. Two different times, people out in the street called the fire department because there was fire shooting out of the top of the building. And when the fire department got there, there is no fire. It's the glory of God. Like the pillar of fire over the Israelites in the wilderness. Two different times. It was reported in the newspapers. The fire department confirmed it. It wasn't a spiritual vision. It was visible to anyone that wanted to see it on the street. Every Pentecostal and charismatic denomination and church, the founding is Azusa Street. Foursquare, Vineyard, Assembly of God, anybody that's Pentecostal or charismatic, Azusa Street is where we started. They went all over the world. In the 1940s through the 60s, there was another healing revival in America where after World War II, um, God was very kind and did did uh, saved a lot of people and lots and lots of healing miracles and Billy Graham began to preach in the 1950s and fill football stadiums as thousands of people in America got born again and came back to Jesus. Here's a picture of the New York skyline in the 1950s. 
Can you imagine that happening in 2021? No, you cannot. It would be absolute outrage if the New York skyscrapers turned their lights on in a cross. But it can happen, folks. This is what revival is, is a return to God in a lost and broken and wicked nation. When God moves, things change and people don't know why. This man's Carlos Anacondia, 1984. He's a millionaire businessman in Argentina, and God tells him, I want you to quit your business and give it all up, start preaching. You're going to lead a million people to Christ, and he has. Since 1984, he's led a million people to Jesus in Argentina. For those of you who know who Bill Johnson is, Bill Johnson says, Carlos Anacondia teaches at a university, and I teach at a preschool, <laughs> if you know Bethel. 1990s, Almalonga, Guatemala, they had four jails. And there were not enough jail cells for the drunks and the murders and the wife beaters. Terrible dark stuff was happening in Almalonga, Guatemala in the early 90s. There was an idol temple there. It was just a mannequin dressed up in a cowboy suit that they would actually bring it food and money and worship it as this local god. And so the pastors began, all the churches in town began to meet together and the pastors praying and fasting for God to do a breakthrough. And he did. And revival began and people began to get saved and start coming to church. So much so that the, the sheriff closes one of the jails because he doesn't need any more. Then he closes a second one. Then he closes a third one. Then he lays off all his deputies because there's no crime. Because the entire town has gotten saved. They get rid of their idol. And now, on a Sunday morning, there is almost literally no one at home. Everybody's in church. This is Easter Sunday back in the 90s in Almalonga, Guatemala, in a town the size of La Grande. Can you imagine Adams Avenue filled with people? It can happen, folks. So, Carlos Anacondia in Argentina in 30 years led a million people to the Lord. Reinhard Bonnke in the 2000s did it in one weekend. A million confirmed, born-again, real salvations in three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, crusade in Nigeria. Eighty million people saved by his ministry alone. Most of those in Africa. Next picture, people as far as you can see. A sea of souls coming to Jesus by the millions. And so... Because he worked in Nigeria for like 30 years, Nigeria has three of the largest church buildings in the world. There are three churches in Nigeria that seat over half a million people. Half a million people every Sunday morning. This is one of those church buildings. Next picture. This is Sunday morning. The building is two miles long. 1.8 miles, three kilometers and that's six or seven hours every Sunday morning. Come on, raise your vision a little bit, folks. Raise your vision a little bit. Half a million people in one church, and there are three of them that are at least that big. And no mega church in America comes even close. That's what I mean when I say worldwide revival. I mean all of that. Rolled into one times five billion in a year or two. I don't mean a year or two from now. I mean in the span of a year or two. That's going to happen. All of that rolled into one. Because the Pharisees said the whole world has gone after him. And I am telling you that's a prophecy. It's a scriptural roadmap 
to what is coming. I don't mean that everybody in the world is going to get born again because the Pharisees stood there and watched Jesus ride his donkey in and everybody praising him and they judged it and they were mad and they hated it. So the elite, the 1%, the activist groups, the leaders of the mobs are not going to get born again. I don't mean that every person in the world is going to get born again, but every person in the world is going to see Jesus for who he really is. And there will be incalculable numbers of salvations and miracles and it will happen in a very short period of time. But I want to point out, Jesus said, she has anointed me for my burial, not his coronation. When this happens, Jesus is coming to cleanse the temple, not fix the government. Come on. His priority is to clean the church, not fix the world. And if you are more committed to your own freedom than you are to following the truth, you'll be the one in the crowd saying, give us Barabbas. Hello? 2 Timothy 3, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Evil men are going to keep growing worse. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, lawlessness will abound, and the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Every nation is going to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in the midst of the worst lawlessness in world history. In Jesus' parable of the wheat field, the Father says, let the wheat and the weeds grow together until they're all ripe at the same time. Hello? So, quote from Mike Bickle, God will release the greatest revival in the midst of the greatest time of escalating darkness in world history. So, revival isn't Jesus coming to save the world, he's coming to save people out of the world. So not necessarily in any order, but during all this revival that I just described to you, on a global scale, there will still be corrupt government and the Pharisees will still be in charge. If you don't know who today's Pharisees are, I can help you out with that. Abortion and even fetal farming is going to continue. There will be war with China and Russia and Iran or all of them. The U.S. dollar will collapse. Marriage will be outlawed and pedophilia will be legalized. Transgender is going to become old news as transhuman evolution takes its place. False Christian groups are going to increase at a rate we don't understand. Real Christians are going to be marginalized more and more. Churches first and then individual Christians. We're going to lose our credit cards. Uh, we'll lose our tax-exempt status. We're going to get all sermons and worship music's going to get kicked off YouTube because the Pharisees are in charge. Crosses will be banned from public. We'll have a social credit score just like in China. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be able to get a job or bank or have your rights. And It's going to happen. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. You can't stock up enough beans and rice and propane and batteries to live through it. I'm not saying don't stock up on those things. You should. But you can't outlast it. I don't know how long it's going to be till it happens. I don't know how long it will last. I don't know. But Jesus isn't going to do anything about it. 
He's going to come and cleanse his church and then leave. He isn't riding into town to take over the government, to make sure that you have your rights. In the midst of the greatest trouble the world has ever known, the church is going to have the closest walk with Jesus we've ever had. There's going to be the greatest miracles and uncountable salvations and the sweetest communion, and he's going to strip down to his underwear and wash our feet in intimate service. But there will also be the most martyrs there's ever been. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If you are one of the 12 who will follow him back out to Bethany when that makes absolutely no sense. Jesus, this is the greatest revival in world history. Why aren't you fixing things? If you will follow him back out to Bethany like the 12, you will experience the greatest communion the church has ever experienced with him. But if you are more committed to your own skin or your own stomach or your own freedom, you will vote for Barabbas. Give me the guy who will actually fight the system. Because Jesus is not coming to fight the system. He's coming to save individual people by the billions. Amen. Amen. Lastly, don't fall into the trap of waiting for revival. Get your butt in the game now. Get in the game now. Don't wait for Jesus to mysteriously lure your neighbors and family into church at 4 a.m. Well, I guess, I guess they're not going to get saved till that happens. Start preaching now. Start talking now. Be the agent of revival in your own family and your own circle of friends and coworkers. And don't wait on Jesus to mysteriously do it. There's nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to wait on revival. Get in the game. Love people and take care of them and preach the gospel. Amen, amen. Let's just say yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. We want it. We want your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Come and reveal yourself to the whole world. Let the whole world worship you, Lord. We love you and bless you.